Uh, it's great to see everyone this morning. Welcome. My name's Stephen Chung. Welcome again to Trinity Heights. It's always been one of the ambitions of Trinity Heights that well, from the time we started, I've, I've always prayed that we would be a church which would raise up new leaders for the church and, and contribute in some small way to the preparation and training of new either pastors for the church or teachers in the church, perhaps in, in, in theological colleges and, and that sort of thing. And it's been a joy that we've seen at least four people from our congregation go off and uh, to pursue theological training. And right now we've got two people doing that. Dave Herman is uh, studying through uh, Fuller um, Seminary. And then our friend uh, Brandon, who's going to speak to us this morning, we talked a lot about where where would be a good place for him to land. And without any influence or, or bias from me, he ended up in London School of Theology. Um, so would you please give Brandon a, a, a warm welcome? Come on up, Brandon. Uh, today's reading will come from Matthew 2, verse 6 and 16 through 18. And you, O Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in that region who were two years old or under. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Uh, the word of the Lord. Um, welcome to church. Welcome to Trinity Heights. Welcome to the third Sunday in Advent. Um, as a refresher, Advent is the time where we anticipate the coming of Christ, the coming of Jesus, and we do that by reflecting and meditating on hope, peace, joy, and love. And so we anticipate these, oh, the stand's magnetic, so my iPad sticks to it, that's fun. Um, we anticipate the fullness of these in the coming of Jesus and his kingdom, the fullness of hope, the fullness of peace, the fullness of joy, and the fullness of love. And so today we will reflect on violence and peace. Um, the teaching comes from Matthew 2. Um, But let's start quickly with Matthew's overall goal, which happens in Matthew 1 and Matthew 2. So he is setting up Jesus as Lord, Jesus as sovereign king. That is his goal. And so Stephen, uh, two weeks ago, did an incredible job of walking us through that riveting list of names. Um, and he did a stand-up job in making that genealogy interesting and meaningful to us. And he pointed out that Matthew uses scoundrels, he uses non-Israelites. I think at one point he circumvents some bloodlines and goes the legal route. And if you can believe it, Matthew, um, he even includes women. Um, how dare he? Um, and so through this, Stephen pointed out, and I think his words were, that Matthew pulls out the carpet from under those who cling to and clamor for power. He pulls out the carpet from underneath those who cling to and clamor for power. 
And so by doing this, Matthew subverts the traditional understandings of power and authority structures in an androcentric and socio-religious context. He's saying what you think it means to be king, what you think a king would be like, no, it's, it's this. And so that's what happens in Matthew 1, that's what Stephen outlined. And then Matthew ends that chapter by saying, Jesus is born, we call him Emmanuel, God with us. So then Matthew 2, we'll do a quick overview. I'm not going to dig out too deeply from the text, so if you have your Bibles or your telephones open, feel free to skim through as I go. Um, but Matthew 2 can essentially be broken down into four, or four sections. One, Herod goes on a manhunt. The Magi find and worship Jesus. Herod then commits infanticide, kills a bunch of children. And then Joseph flees to Nazareth, right? So at the start, we have Herod, who is the client king of, of Judah, right? He's effectively the king of Jews for this context, right? And the Magi, who are Gentiles, foreigners, they come to him and they say, hey, mate, we hear there's a new king of the Jews. I'm, I'm not a diplomat. That's probably not how I would open with that sort of thing, going to somebody in such a position of power and authority. But they say that to him. And the text says um, that Herod and all of Jerusalem are afraid, right? Um, so I put myself in that situation of Herod. I'm currently in charge of this region. I hear a new king is coming. And, and Matthew's text uses the word Christ, which we know to mean Messiah, anointed king, the guy who's going to come and do the job well, the one who will shepherd the people of Israel. And so I can imagine Herod thinking, not just, uh-oh, there's someone competing for my position of power, but there's somebody who's going to take my job and do it better than me. And so I imagine that boils up a lot of insecurities and anxieties, right? I have enough standing up here in front of you today, but I imagine this king who's already thinking someone's going to take everything that is mine. That's not a great combination for power and authority, right? We've never seen insecurity and anxiety be paired with power and authority and go wrong, right? 2016 through 2020, um, the early to mid-1940s, right? It's never been a bad combination. So Herod then, he says, and this is great, this is really great, Matthew's so clever. He quotes Herod as saying, go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me, to, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Like, what a lie, right? That is not what he's feeling, but that's what he says. And so he says to the Magi, off you pop. And so they go, and they find Jesus, and they worship him. And I find this, this, this situation is particularly striking to me because, I mean, we might anticipate in a gospel that's perpetuating Jesus, that's perpetuating him as sovereign king, we would anticipate him to be worshipped, right? But what we have is the Gentiles, who should not have known that a new king of the Jews was coming, shouldn't have even been on their radar, much less cared. They hear about it, and they go and find him, and then they worship him. And we have Herod and all of Jerusalem, who should have known, should have been excited about this, they're not pumped at all, and they say, go search and destroy. 
And so we have a really ex- striking subversion um, in that text that I find um, particularly interesting. So then we have two dreams. Joseph has a dream that says, go take your family and flee because some bad stuff's getting ready to go down. And then we have the Magi who are given a dream. And their dream is, hey, don't go back the way that you came. Take the scenic group home, right? And I don't know if one of them had that dream. I don't know if all three of them had the dream. I don't know if they talked about it over coffee and scones the next morning of, hey, let's not go back to the guy with the wealth, the power, and the authority. But they decide, let's go, let's, let's go the long way home. Let's take the scenic route. So they do. And so then Herod, having been foiled, his response is to obliterate every male child two years and under. Now that's a response, right? Whether it's a gut reaction or a decision, that is a response. He says, I'm going to ruin families and destroy families. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted. She refused peace because they are no more. Right? That's the effect. So as any good narrative does, we have a time skip. Thank you, Parks and Recreation. Um, Herod dies, but Joseph is still, I'm not going back. I'm not going home. And that's because Herod wasn't really the threat, right? The threat was power and authority or, or the misuse of power and authority, which we know does not go away when one man dies. And so Joseph, intuitively or consciously, he saw that Herod's, Herod's son had taken the throne. And when you raise a child or if you live in an environment where there's misuse of power and authority, the regular use of violence, that isn't just misuse, that becomes use. That becomes your standard. And so Joseph says, no, not gonna have anything to do with that. And he goes to Nazareth. So that's Matthew two. So what we essentially have is a tableau of juxtapositions. We have Herod, who was killing babies and destroying families because of his own insecurities and megalomaniac anxieties. And then we have Jesus, a baby, who has come to restore the family of Israel and inaugurate the inclusion of the Gentile world. We have Herod, his using violence against others and himself, I'll get there. And we have Jesus, who has come to bring peace and restore these power structures. So we have violence and peace. Took a while, but we got there. So let's, let's remind ourselves of Matthew's overall goal. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is sovereign king, right? So if we follow that by calling Jesus Lord, and we follow Matthew's goal of Jesus is the sovereign king who subverts traditional understandings of power and authority through peacemaking, then we become peacemakers. By calling Jesus Lord, we become peacemakers. It becomes part of our default newness in Christ. We put on the mantle of peacemaking. Is that, is that a straight line? I, I don't know. I've been 
repeating this to myself over the past 48 hours. So I don't know if it's a straight line or maybe a, a wavy one. Um, but, but what I'm arguing is we take on that aspect. As we are anticipating Jesus coming to fulfill peace, we, in our current setting, go out into the world displaying peace, providing alternative approaches to power and authority, right? So, we should, we should then anticipate being put into situations that require peace. They need an injection of peace. So we should, be, we should anticipate being put in situations of conflict and tension and difficulty. Doesn't that sound like a load of fun, right? Who wants to sign up to be baptized? Um, this reminds me of our friend Allison. Um, Allison, stand-up woman, um, she and her husband, Tim, are two of the most generous people to have ever walked the planet Earth. Take that, Mother Teresa. Um, and Allison is a doctor, and she's constantly being called to be a doctor when she's not being a doctor. She's constantly made to be a doctor when she's not a doctor. And this is not just because I'll send texts and say, hey, Allison, my arm is red, angry, and itchy. What do I do? Um, the running joke with Allison is you can't go anywhere with her without anticipating some sort of medical drama, right? Hey, Allison, how's your weekend been? Um, oh, it's fine. We went to brunch with the moms, and there's a guy walking his dog, and he ended up having a cardiac event, fell down, and was bleeding, so we stabilized him and then uh, until the EMTs came. This is a regular occurrence uh, in Allison's life, things like that. So we should anticipate a similar thing, is what I'm arguing. We should anticipate being put in situations that are going to require peace, that need that peace, right? And so, I argue that peace equates to justice and righteousness. Um, my wife should probably be up here instead of me because she said, we are not called to create peace on our own terms. We can't just go out and create peace on our own terms. We have to have some model to follow. Um, and so Bruce Birch, in his commentary on Amos or Amos, um, depending on your version of English, um, he defines justice as the claim of all persons to full and equitable participation in the structures and dealings of the community, and especially to equity in the legal system. This is everything that our prayer of peace was just about, right? It's everything we've seen in the news over the past few years in our periphery, and arguably probably throughout entire history. And we've seen probably the injustices more recently over the past few weeks as we've seen a lot of people get away with a lot of stuff that doesn't treat people well or removes them from the legal system. So Birch, he also describes righteousness as a relational term. He says, it refers to the expectation in relationships that persons will, in their intentions and actions, seek the wholeness of the partner in that relationship. And Birch goes on to say, thus, righteousness can refer to a relationship to God or any of the many human relationships that make up our lives. 
doing justice is one of the ways in which we might seek to fulfill our obligation to righteousness and the relationships of neighbor, community, and nation. One of my professors, Miriam Hinksman, likes to talk about justice and righteousness within the um, Hebraic wisdom tradition um, as fish and chips. It's always justice and righteousness, right? It's fish and chips. So if you think about fish and chips, something's coming to mind, right? It's probably fried white fish, maybe wrapped in newspaper with ketchup or vinegar, depending on where you're from or how weird you are. Um, Fish on its own can be myriads of things. It can be high cuisine, low cuisine, middle cuisine. Chips can be French fried potatoes. It can be thinly sliced potato crisp. It can be myriad of things. But when it's together, it's fish and chips is fish and chips, right? So justice and righteousness is justice and righteousness. Justice can be on its own myriad of interpretations, myriad of things. Same thing with righteousness. But when we think of peace, we think of peace as justice and righteousness. We think of peace as fish and chips. That's her argument. So we can't just leave it at this and say go and, and live your lives in peace. There needs to be some sort of example of what does that look like. And honestly, all I'm going to do is quote Colossians 3, 12 through 17. It's, it's an incredible um, example of what does this look like um, without spending another 20 minutes just talking about what does peace look like. So Colossians 3, 12 through 17. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, in intention or action, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So I realize that peace over, over violence is probably low-hanging fruit for many of us in this room and that it risks falling flat. Uh, there's the potential for it to sound like Christmas sentiment or the right message to hear before we go and we engage with the world tomorrow or with families before the holidays. But the risk, <clears throat> the risk is that we forget our own contributions that encourage hurt, violence, or the misuse of power and authority. That's what we risk. We risk forgetting where we encourage hurt, violence, or the misuse of power and authority in our own daily lives. And so Bruce Birch, heck of a guy, at the end of his commentary of Amos chapter 5, has this list of questions. 
I'm not going to read through all of them. Um, the ones down towards the bottom, I think, are particularly poignant. Um, but as we think about Colossians 3, have a look at these questions. Where can peace, where can peace as justice and righteousness be lived out in your life? I don't know if it's in a work situation. I don't know if it's with your family. I don't know if it's within your church community, within your neighborhood, the annoying neighbor that plays their music too loud, the belligerent colleague, or the ungrateful client, whatever it is. It can even be zoomed out into positions of societal injustice or environmental injustice, right? There are myriad opportunities for us to take justice and righteousness and create peace. And so I'm, I'm really thankful for Chris's message last week, particularly at the end. It's something I'd been thinking about for a few weeks. One of the things, he says it better than I do, so I'm going to steal it. Um, if peace is our work, then we can, we can execute it in a, in a thousand tiny gestures. We can go out into the world and in, through a thousand tiny gestures, we can take justice and righteousness, the peace that Jesus brings through not being a baby, right? That's, Jesus being a baby is, is a little bit irrelevant. It's through his life, it's through his death, and through his resurrection where he becomes the sovereign king. He takes authority over all of those aspects. And that is where he brings the fullness of peace in. And so, as we call Jesus Lord, as we call Jesus Sovereign King, we are peacemakers. And so this week, I encourage you to go out in peace. Mm -hmm.